Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. It's great to be with you. We are moving through a sermon series on core values. I'll explain that in a moment, but we want to dismiss our children for Children's Church. Some correlation between those two things. In our Children's Church, the children are are thinking together about what it means uh, to be part of the church. Uh, We're preparing them to join with us more fully in worship. In this short sermon series, this is the third of three sermons on some core values of the church, we are telling you about things that are really important to our church, to our congregation. In many ways, they could be important for many groups of people, many congregations. We think they're they're, uh, uh, pretty broad in that sense, but uh, we want to tell you about them and uh, for the purpose of you entering more fully into worship with us and the partnership in ministry with us. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about what it means for us to be a city church. You may notice our name, City Reform Presbyterian Church, has the word city in it. And uh, over the years, people have come to abbreviate us somewhat unofficially as city. So if I heard uh, Lindsay do that in her testimony, that's happened gradually over the course of a number of years. I've even found myself doing it a little bit. Um, uh, But our identity is clearly bound up in our location in our place of service. And I want to talk with you today about how we understand that and uh, what it means for us to be a city church. Um, We're going to look at one of these great passages in the Bible that talks about how Christians relate to the world around them, in particular the place God has put them. And we'll do that by looking at uh, a passage from the book of Jeremiah, an Old Testament passage in which God speaks through the prophet, telling them how they are to love the city to which he has brought them. I'll read the passage and ask you then to affirm it together uh, when we're done that this is the word of the Lord. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 1, and then verses 4 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, into the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its wealth you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, as I mentioned before, we have a motive in preaching through these core values or key principles to the church. We, we talked a couple weeks ago about our commitment to God's word, its authority, its power in our lives. As we gather together, God speaks through it and shows us Jesus, giving us grace through him. I talked last week about uh, uh, our calling together to love and encourage one another, to build one another up, to encourage each other promoting good works among ourselves, this relational component. This week, I want to talk about our commitment to our place, to our city, how we relate to the world around us. Uh, but as I inferred, we're doing, I'm doing this, we're doing this with an intention, and that is that we would invite you into deeper partnership. And I've found in my life, it's often important when you're inviting someone to a new and different type of relationship that we be clear about our intentions up front. From time to time, people have tried to recruit me to like a a business or some sort of a venture or to sell me something, and I always resented when they didn't tell me in the beginning that's what they were doing. Uh, Personally, I've found when I want to uh, enter into new relationships with people, it's helpful to be clear about what I'm asking. Last week, I I shared a little bit about my own relational struggles as a teenager, not knowing how to relate to women. Uh, and, uh, and then one day I was married, and I, I told you I sometimes take that for granted, even though it was everything I would have dreamed of as a young man. So I'll just fill in the gaps in between of that story and tell you again a little more about myself. I have my wife's permission to tell you this story. I was uh, working in a summer camp. Uh, there was a beautiful young woman named Chrissy Baldoff there. We got to know each other over the course of the summer. We were friends, we talked theology, we drank coffee, we did ministry, and at the end of the summer, I realized I really liked her. So I did something that was very new for me. I talked to her about my feelings. Um, This was a big step. I was in my early 20s. You might say it's about time, but I was a slow bloomer. Uh, Talking about my feelings, that was a big step to begin with. Talking about my feelings with a young woman was a tremendous step. And so I, I started to talk about how I felt, and, and uh, I felt being around her, and, and she turned to me and said, you should not talk that way to young women. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, this is not going at all the way I had hoped. <laughs> and fortunately, after a moment of clarification, what, ha- what we found out was happening is she didn't realize I was actually trying to invite her into a new relationship. She thought I was you know, playing around with her, her feelings. That's understandable. I wasn't clear enough up front that what I really wanted was a new and deeper type of relationship, more than just friends. And fortunately, she ultimately said, yes, here we are today, 20 years later, almost, maybe almost to the week. Um, so anyway, uh, I've learned through painful failure that it's important to share intentions. And my intention for you all today is to invite you into deeper relationship with our church, uh, to greater service. Or uh, I think some of you might be here visiting and you're thinking, what is City Reformed all about? We're trying to tell you enough about ourselves, the really big things up front, so that you can make a decision about whether you would partner with us in ministry, whether you would join with us and, and share your time, your talents, your sacred treasure, as the American founders said. Uh, but also, some of you maybe have been coming for a while, and we are inviting you into deeper commitment to the church, deeper uh, a role, perhaps a role of leadership that you've not had before. 
City Reformed is a church that changes radically and rapidly. Uh, We're in a very transient place. People are coming and going. They're moving through Oakland. We cannot do what we need to do in ministry unless we have new people serving in new ways every single year, simply replacing people that have moved on and moved out and moved into a different phase and sphere of life. So this is ultimately, I'll tell you up front, an invitation. Now, in order to give that invitation, I need to do two things. First of all, I need to tell you our theological understanding of what Christians should be thinking about when they relate to the world around them. All right, what are we trying to do in the city? We've told you about our commitment to to God's word, about our commitment to each other. To round out the picture, we want to talk generally about what it means for Christians to be faithful in the place God has put them. And we're going to do that by looking at Jeremiah 29. And secondly, I'm going to tell you how we understand that to apply to our situation in Pittsburgh, in the university and medical center. What do we see ourselves doing? And then finally, I'll close with the invitation to to join in, perhaps in new or deeper ways. Uh, So first of all, what is it Christians are doing as they engage with the world? How do we think about our role Well, the New Testament authors had many options if they were thinking about describing the Christian place in the world. They were drawing on the history of Israel and what we call the Old Testament. But what's very interesting is when the New Testament authors chose to tell the church what it meant to be the church relative to the world, they didn't choose pictures of Israel's glory and success. That's usually what we do, don't we, when we talk to people, if we want to introduce ourselves. We would rather tell them about the places we've been very successful, about our our great accomplishments or our glory days, or groups of people often function that way. When my family was in Athens for the summer two years ago, uh, we learned that the Greek people still like to identify themselves with the Greek empire from 2,400 years ago, right? It's a long time ago. But that's still sort of their primary way of thinking about who they are relative to the world. Now, we would expect the New Testament authors then to think of the glory days of Israel when they were a thriving kingdom under David or Solomon, when they were in the middle of the trade routes between the ancient Near East and, 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 uh, and Egypt and the, the great movement across their country making them prosperous. But no. Instead, when the New Testament authors want to tell the church who they are relative to the world, they don't use the picture of glory, but they use a picture of exile. And they do this in one of two ways. They either, many, many ways actually, but two predominant. One is they think of the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. And the Apostle Paul says, Israel wandering in the wilderness after God brought them out of Egypt before they got into the promised land is a picture of how you can be faithful as you wait for the great hope God has for you. But the other and more predominant picture used in several places is the New Testament authors use language of exile to help the church think about its place. The church, uh, the people of Israel uh, were living as God's people in a land he had given them, but they disobeyed, they rebelled, and as a result, God removed the protection and he took them out of their land. They were conquered by Babylon and people were brought. They're conquered to the city of Babylon. And so they had to make sense of how to live there. How do they live in exile? They don't have power. They They are sort of refugees in a foreign land. 
uh, those of you who, who have come to America and, and you don't know the language, it's not your first language, or you're simply learning a new culture, you know how disorienting it can be to live in a city not your own. Well, this exile experience in Babylon is the experience the New Testament authors use to describe the life of the church. We see that in many places. Uh, we hear Paul telling his people that they, they learn from the wanderings, but they think of themselves as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. We have a heavenly citizenship. We are, in a sense, resident aliens, first and fully members of God's kingdom, but present here, in a sense, as exiles. In his letter to the church first, in First Peter, Peter tells the church that they are sojourners and exiles. He says, just as Babylon was a place that God's people had to learn to live in, you too are sojourners and exiles in a land. You don't often have power or influence. Sometimes Christians do. Sometimes we can use it well. But often we might find ourselves not really at the center of things. And I think this is a particularly helpful image for us because many of you live and work in places where you feel like you don't really have that much power and influence. Some of you do, and we want to use properly that which you can have. But increasingly, Christians in America often feel marginalized. That might be your experience. Uh, You might work in a place where you feel like, I'm not really sure I'm welcome here. Or you may be a student in a department or a program where you think, my religious views are not really welcome. Well, the image of exile is so helpful for us. It reminds us that we're not to cling and grasp after worldly power, but that we see God working even when we find ourselves at the margins. Well, we look at uh, uh, Jeremiah 29. It is the passage to exiles par excellence. It's the foundational text in the Old Testament on how to live as an exile. And that's why this passage has become so important for Christians down through the years. If you've not heard a sermon on it before, you probably will again in the future because it's a foundational text. Jeremiah is speaking to exiles. He's speaking to people who'd been taken out of Babylon. They were living on the river banks of Babylon, not sure what to do next. There were false prophets telling them just to hold on a little bit and wait because they would come home soon. Jeremiah 28 outlines false prophets. And in this passage today, God clearly says, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're doing. Instead of a short exile, it would be a long exile. They needed to settle in, settle down, and be productive in their time. Verse 10 says, 70 years would be completed in Babylon. So Jeremiah is writing to exiles who were going to have a long exile. They weren't merely on a camping trip. In the passage, we see three things that they needed to do that we can learn from as we think about being faithful in our relationship to the world around us. Uh, First of all, God says to the exiles that they are going to settle in and be productive. Verse 5, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and, and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The promise of multiplying was given in the very beginning to Abraham, the great-grandfather of the nation of Israel. And this promise would be fulfilled, God says, even in exile. God's purposes for them would continue, even when they were strangers in a strange land, without power, marginalized, and often at the whims of the Babylonian Empire. But here, God says, put down roots and invest. 
Now, on one hand, you can say, how much would they invest if it was 70 years? And yet, that's enough time to really dig in and make an impact. It's a reminder that often God's call in our lives includes very mundane and ordinary things. What do we do? Well, we invest in gardens and homes and families. We invest in relationships, things that often change slowly over time. Christian faithfulness in our place often involves very mundane faithfulness in ordinary matters. Isn't that really the essence of gardening after all? There's some times of tilling and planting, but there's an awful lot of waiting. And from day to day, the change is often small, even imperceptible. And yet, the fruitfulness that comes from a garden is life-giving. And so, the first thing that we learn here as we think about what what it means to be an exile in general for all Christians is that we are meant to be people that build, that invest, that invest often in ordinary things. For some of us, it may mean marriage. For some of us, uh, we invest outside, not in marriage, but we invest in our church community, in our communities. We're caring for people in relationships over the long haul. That may have been a bit of a surprise for people that thought of themselves as refugees or exiles. But the second thing would have been even more surprising. Verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, if it was a surprise to find out they were going to have to settle in in Babylon, it must have been a tremendous surprise to find out that they were meant to bless the Babylonians. After all, it was the Babylonians who had conquered Jerusalem. It was the Babylonians who had swept over their borders and taken many of them into prisoner, killing others along the way. Babylon was a brutal, world-conquering empire And in many ways, it becomes the picture in the Bible of a human system in opposition to God. Throughout the Bible, from Babel to Babylon, there is an archetype of humans in rebellion against God. It is, as Augustine said, the city of man. Humans on their own, apart from God, doing what they do. And so we may have expected that in exile in Babylon, they would curse Babylon that they would act in judgment against Babylon, perhaps uh, an underground revolt seeking to undermine these systems of authority that had been so, uh, so disastrous in their own life. But instead, they are called to bless the Babylonians, seek the welfare of the city, pray for it, because you will be bound up with them. Now, this word welfare here is, is, is coming from a very rich Hebrew word, Uh, Sometimes it's translated in English as peace. The Hebrew word is shalom, and the reason it's translated differently is that in Hebrew, the word shalom is so rich and so deep that it's hard to get an exact English word for it. When we hear peace, we sometimes just think quiet, but shalom is more than quiet. It's things functioning together peacefully and fruitfully. Peace is what happens when people are singing together in harmony. The product of their voice is greater than what they would be on their own. Shalom is people living in relationship in ways that are fruitful and life-giving. This is what they are called to seek in Babylon. It's a reminder that Christians are fundamentally people who are committed to the common good. This is why Christians can be salt and light. It's why they're a blessing in any place, they're meant to be a blessing in any place in which they are in. 
even when we are outside of power or outside of influence, we are people who seek the common good to the best that we are able. And in so doing, we become a blessing to the city in which God has brought us. Third, we see here a reminder, however, that they are not ultimately bound for Babylon. They would be there for 70 years. For 70 years, they would invest. They would seek to bless. They would pray for the city. They would seek the common good, even as they invested in their own families, their houses, and their gardens. But they were bound for something more. Jeremiah reminds them that even in Babylon, they were not outside God's purposes that God was actually fulfilling their purposes as they were being uh, shaped, refined, and redeemed in Babylon during their time of exile, and one day God would call them back, call them to a place where their relationship with him would be even more immediate. And so we too are a people reminded that our earthly city is not our final destiny. We may serve Babylon, we may serve Pittsburgh, But the city is not our ultimate identity. We look to a city that is to come. Christians are told throughout the Bible that we are people who look forward with expectation to what God will do in the world. We wait for the return of Jesus, the renewal of all things, and the new Jerusalem that God himself will establish. And what this means is that we are people who are identified first and foremost by our home city, and not our place of exile. In the ancient world, you would often take your identity from your city. We think of the Apostle Paul, who was spoken of as being from Tarsus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Babylonian Empire from Babylon, the Roman Empire from Rome. It's natural that we would take our identity from our city or from our family tribal group or from our nation. But we're not first and foremost from Pittsburgh, from America, or from a particular family group. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, part of God's eternal family, and that what we do here now, while we're called the faithful service, planting and building, we do with the hope that our future lies elsewhere. Our identity is bound up in another city. So those three things shaped their perspective of exile, and it's really what the New Testament authors wanted them to think about. It's exactly the sort of thing Peter talks about when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. In a sense, all of that is bound up there. It's what Peter tells the church to do. Seek the common good of the people around you. Be faithful to build in the place that you're in. But remember, always remember that you are made for something more. You are made for a heavenly city. And we look forward to the day God will visit us. And so, really, we could say any Christian, wherever they are, would be seeking the peace, the welfare, the good of the place in which God has brought them. I grew up in a small town in central Pennsylvania. And uh, in a small town, some of these systems are a little bit easier, but you could see clear and direct ways in which Christians would impact their city as they were seeking to serve it and building and yet waiting for a kingdom that is to come. We believe that this is a calling of all Christians everywhere, but we are called particularly to service here. So I want to take that big idea and make it local. I want to apply it to Oakland 
City Reformed is called to service in the university and medical center of the city of Pittsburgh, a place that has great influence and impact on the region as a whole. As I move to the second part, thinking about our specific calling here, it's a, it's a place of great opportunity and great challenge. We believe that in our service to Oakland, uh, we are serving an important part of the city and people who are in great need of the gospel message. Uh, Modern cities are places of influence just as ancient cities were. As we seek to worship and to serve in the city of Oakland, we seek to be a congregation that ministers to people at very, very important times in their life. Now, there's a lot of things happening in Oakland, uh, a lot of things happening in this immediate region that are incredibly important, not only for the people involved, but for the region beyond. People often come to Oakland pursuing uh, uh, academic study, pursuing a career, moving upward in their uh, uh, particular vocational track. And so we're a place of seekers in some ways. People from all over uh, uh, the western Pennsylvania region, all over our country, even all over the world, come to Pittsburgh because of our university and medical centers. We believe that this is an important calling, that we would worship with and minister to people in those places. Now, that's not the entirety of Oakland. There are other people here as well. The university setting includes many types of people in many types of places, and Oakland and the city as a whole has folks from lots of different uh, backgrounds and different places. But there is incredible opportunity. I I used to tell people that Oakland had... 30 to 40,000 college students, or Pittsburgh had that. But doing some research the other day, that I realized that there's really twice as many college students in the Pittsburgh area. 70 to 80,000 students coming here from all over the world. And perhaps that's why you're here. You've relocated to Pittsburgh for a course of study, or perhaps for your first job. Your path of medical training brings you into the UPMC Medical Center. It's a time of great opportunity and a time of great challenge. We believe that by serving this community, we're meeting people in incredibly vulnerable times in their life, in in times of potentially great influence. My own life was changed as a college student. Many of us can look at how God changed us in the early phases of our career, in the early phases of a family. These are important times and places, and we seek to be a church serving this place. But there are incredible challenges. Just as people come to Oakland seeking things, there are many forces that pull us outward. Our church is located in a place of great transition. Uh, Many of you have experienced that yourself. You've been brought into the area, and then your next career or your next stage of training will take some of you or some of your best friends out of it. It's a place of movement, and it makes church hard. Sometimes I tell my pastor friends, and and I'm trying to describe what our church is like, I'll say it's kind of like doing church in a train station. Every year, a bunch of people show up, they get off the train, and then some of them get back on and go somewhere else. And in between, there's a lot of milling around, and a lot of motion, and a lot of chaos. That's life in our area, and that's life in our congregation. It's a wonderful, beautiful opportunity, but it's chaotic, it's sometimes unstable, and it's often transient. Beyond that, our modern life, for all people, is increasingly complex. 
Sometimes we find that the things God called us, calls us to do as sojourners and exiles can feel like they're pushing against each other. Our, our calling to serve the city and to be a witness to the world around us, to be engaged with our neighbors, sometimes feels like it can be in contrast with our calling to build homes, plant gardens, and make families. Often our concerns for family, for home, or even for garden can be forces and influences that pull us back out of the city. Just as things pull us in, things pull us out. And so the people movements around our, our area and around our church often feel like they're churning. People coming in as they seek something, people going out as they seek something else. Against it all, we seek to be a congregation faithfully proclaiming Jesus in this place as we seek the good, the peace, the welfare of our city. That's what we're doing here. And and what I really want to be doing today, as I mentioned before, is inviting you to participate with us in that endeavor. It's a transient place, it's a place of movement but a place of incredible opportunity. Today we heard the testimony, a testimony we hear often, something like this, of someone who says their life was impacted in in their transient time of their life by the ministry of our church. For some of you, your ministry and being here week in and week out, perhaps driving into Oakland to join us for worship, giving sacrificially, giving of your time and your resources has made possible the witness that we have to people throughout the city and particularly in the university and medical community. It's an incredible opportunity. We see, uh, again, people not only from all over our region but from all over the world relocating here in our midst. Loving our neighbor means we love people in times of great opportunity in their lives. But it's a costly calling For those in our congregation who have committed to this calling, uh, it takes time, energy, and sacrifice to do it. Some of you drive long distances to come and meet with us. Our church is dependent on people doing that. There are not enough people living in Oakland that are here long term to have a viable church if we were just Oakland people. Modern life is far more complex than that anyway, isn't it? We live and work and study and go all different places. We are dependent on people that come in and join us in ministry. We're thankful for what has been done. Fifteen years ago, a group of Presbyterians, faithful Christians from throughout the region committed together to begin to form a new church plant that would serve the university and medical community. It was a year and a half later that I was called to be a pastor, but even before I arrived, a group of faithful Christians committed to give of their time, their labor, their sacred treasure for the purpose of a new church in the city. I'm thankful for that legacy, and many of those people are still with us today, but we can only minister going forward if others begin to join in, grab hold of that vision, and walk with us in partnership and ministry. But what does that look like? Let me just share three specific invitations in closing. First of all, our church, like any church, gathers. We do things together. And in fact, that's most, what's most visible when people think of church. On Sunday mornings, we gather for worship. It's the center of our identity. 
we gather and hear God speak to us through his word and we encourage one another. We also gather throughout the weeks in smaller informal gatherings in small groups or specialty groups. We gather for projects of service as we seek to love our neighbors and to understand other people that share the city with us. We're committed to partner ministries and ministry with other churches in our city that are doing things that are important. And so we gather together. Uh, again, we think perhaps first and foremost of our worship service, but our gatherings are difficult and they require sacrifice. We meet in this room because we want to be in the center of where students are in particular. We are putting ourselves as close as we can to people that come from our region and from all over the world. We're aware that other people are here too. We want to serve them as well. It's not just students, but we very intentionally said we're going to be where the students are. We've invested heavily in campus ministry. We support six different campus pastors and ministers and staff moving to campuses throughout our city, going places we can't go as a congregation. But every week, even the process of doing worship requires effort. We set up, we tear down. We invest money in rent. We gather together and people are prepared to watch our children and sing songs, lead us in worship and prepare food. And friends, we need your help. I'm gonna invite you today to think carefully about how you might participate in our gathered ministry. When you leave here, you're going to see a bunch of tables and people's on the, at those tables, and they'll have a sign-up sheet for people who would put their names on a rotation for Sunday morning ministry. Now, we do a lot of other ministry that's important, but simply making Sunday morning happen usually requires 40 to 50 different volunteers doing something. And if we all take our part and do our small piece, it becomes a manageable, manageable weight on everyone involved. Would you consider, friends, how you could join us in helping, perhaps in a new way or a deeper way, to make our gathered worship possible? But secondly, I want to invite you to think more carefully about the peace of the city, the welfare, the goodness of the city as we scatter. These are classic sort of theological uh, constructs. The church gathers and then the church scatters. And some of the most important things we would do in caring for our city are not things we do together as a gathered church, but what you do with your neighbors, in your schools, in your jobs, and in your free time. Some of these things we might uh, be able to partner in, but often, them we do, often we do them scattered. Friends, the things that brought you into the city are often things that pull you in different directions. But our desire is that the members of our congregation would think carefully about how all of the choices in their life promote the good of our city and of our region. And so our invitation to you is that when you make the hard decisions about where you work and where you live and what you do for school and how you use your free time, you're going to have to navigate so many complex demands and so many different needs. My invitation to you was would you think carefully about how all of those decisions affect the peace and the good and the welfare of our city? Would you consider perhaps uh, making a different decision in where you work or where you live or what you do for school because of the way that decision impacts a good greater than yourself? As a church, we're committed to calling you to do that. We'll do it again and again and again. 
And together, we will see an incredible, fruitful impact as God's people in our church and in many others seek to serve our city in different ways. One of the great joys for me as a pastor is to work with people as they do their work, to visit you in the places you work, where you teach, where you serve others. Some of them are spread throughout the western Pennsylvania area, and some of you have been given opportunities and doors for service here in ways that are really exciting. Third and finally, though, let me make sure that we hear the clearest invitation of all. The invitation at the center of all of our experience of exile is that we would be a people that know that we belong to God. God says very powerfully in the book of Jeremiah that he has plans and purposes for his people and that when they call upon him and come to him, when they seek him with all of their heart, he will be found. He will restore, he will gather, and he will redeem. Friends, let me close today by asking you this simple question, the most simple of all. Have you responded to the invitation that God gives through the Lord Jesus Christ that you would know him as the center of your life? Maybe you're in Oakland because you're seeking something beyond God. Most likely you are. You're here seeking a degree, you're here seeking a better future, you're here uh, seeking something that would be important in your life, but God says, beneath it all, do you know that I am seeking you? Is it possible that perhaps you've come to Oakland because God has desired, first first and foremost, to bring you to himself? Are you here today at this worship service, perhaps because of God's purpose, to reveal himself to you. That through faith in Jesus, through looking to the one who gave up everything, that we could be brought into the family of God, we might have faith and salvation together. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ himself endured a life of exile so that we could be brought into God's family. First and foremost, the greatest invitation of all is that we would respond to his call In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus, though he had equality with God, didn't count it a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He left the throne of heaven to live a life on earth, a life that was often characterized by poverty. He spoke of himself as a man without a home. At the height of his career, he was rejected by his own people, taken outside of the city, and crucified as a penalty for your sins and mine. Do you know that Savior? Have you responded to his call to submit your life before him and find life and peace and health in him? Jesus was cast out that you and I could be brought in. In him is our hope, our future, and our salvation. Let me close in prayer.